14th podcast in my series dealing with common questions and controversies of Christianity. So in today's lesson, we're going to be discussing the topic of true worship. If you've been a Christian or a church attender for the last 20 years or so, then you haven't really escaped worship wars. While quibbling over form and style, we've increasingly become distracted from the real essence of worship, and we've overlooked what the New Testament truly emphasizes. While not completely ignoring form and style, refocusing our energies on the biblical priority of worship will certainly move us in the right direction. Plain and simple, the entire purpose of our existence is to glorify God. If the church succeeds in cultivating an atmosphere of true worship as a true desire, we're going to bring glory to God through our worship. So we'll approach this by answering four questions. Question number one, what does the New Testament say about worship? It's interesting to note that the New Testament was written with a stunning silence toward outward form or style of corporate worship. Instead, it focuses on the radical internalization as an inner, God-centered experience of the heart. It's also interesting that the corporate worship gathering of the New Testament church is never identified by the word worship. The main Old Testament word for worship translated into the Septuagint is the word proskuneo. It means to physically bow down or to lay prostrate with one's face on the ground. It's found in the Gospels 26 times and in the book of Revelation 24 times for a total of 50 mentions. What's interesting is that it only appears in the epistles one time in the Pauline epistles in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25. There it refers to the reaction of an unbeliever who entered the church service and finds himself being convicted that God is among them. So other than that one particular instance, proskuneo never appears in any of the other letters of Peter, James, or John. So the question is, why? Why is it so abundant in some of the books and absent in others? Well, it depends on whether Jesus is present. When he's present, there's a physical bowing down before him. And when he's absent, there's no such mention of that physical bowing down or that kind of posture. He was physically present in the Gospels, and he's also present with angels and his people in heaven. But during this present age, or the church age, he's not here. So bowing physically isn't necessary. What that tells us is that worship during this period isn't really defined in a physical or ritualistic sense. It's about the heart. So true worship isn't physical, it's spiritual. This is affirmed by the Lord himself in John chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, where he instructs the Samaritan woman about the radical change of worship. She believed that worship needed to occur on a particular mountain and according to a prescribed formula. Well, Jesus pointed out to her that inner spiritual reality replaced geographical locality. His response to her was, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And that is replaced, of course, by in spirit and in truth. In other words, true worship is an inner experience grounded in and compelled by Scripture. Jesus reiterates this principle in Matthew 15, verses 8 through 9, when he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me. Worship that doesn't manifest itself from the heart and nourished by truth is vain and empty. To further confirm the innerness of worship, Paul uses the word latreo, and it's used over 90 times, which is usually translated to serve. 
He uses this term to reinforce the principle that worship is not found in form or style, but in obedience and service. For example, Romans 1.9, he said, I serve or worship God with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And in Philippians 3.3, Paul said that true Christians worship God in the spirit of God and put no confidence in the flesh. Also in Romans 12.1, he encouraged Christians to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul considered his own ministry as an acceptable offering in worship to God, Romans 15.16 and Philippians 2.17. He even calls the giving of money by various ministries um, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice to God in worship. So even when Paul uses an Old Testament word for worship, he goes to great lengths to avoid using it as a localized formal event. So worship in the New Testament is not institutionalized, nor is it localized or externalized or formalized. So there's a radical change from ceremony and forms and locations to an experience in the heart. This goes far beyond the Sunday morning worship time but includes every moment of our lives. The Old Testament was primarily a come and see formula. The New Testament protocol is to go and tell. While the focus was on the people of Israel in one place, worship could be structured and, and fixed in some sort of formal way. But once Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, it changed. The New Testament silence on form and style is deliberate, allowing for numerous forms and styles that would adapt themselves to all cultures around the world. So the startling scarcity of how to worship is missing in order for worship to have an infinite expression in numerous and unrestricted ways. The central New Testament act of worship is defined in a life that reflects the glory of God. This is what it means in Scripture, such as in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do in word and deed, do all for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So worship isn't an external localized act, but an inner Godward experience that demonstrates itself not in form and style in church but in a life that expresses an authentic allegiance to God. Question number two, what is the appropriate inner experience that glorifies God in worship? We find the answer in Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, when Paul said, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Notice that Paul's passion here is what he does in the body or in his life. To worship then is to magnify Christ, whether we are living or we are dying. He sees worship as showing Christ as magnificent and exalting him in every facet of life. That takes us way beyond the 20-minute worship set on the Sunday morning service. We can say with Paul that the essence of worship is an inner cherishing of Christ. This means that true worship is valuing Christ above all life, including family and career, retirement, fame, food, health, and friends. The essence of worship is far above form. It's a prizing Christ above everything in life. 
Paul helps us to understand this attitude toward worship in Philippians 3.8, where he wrote, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To live as Christ means that we count everything as a hindrance in comparison to the value of gaining Christ. To put it another way, true worship is nothing short of prizing Christ above everything in life. Question number three, how does the biblical definition of worship help us to navigate these worship wars? Well, what about the controversies that we all face, differing worship styles in different churches? Every church has a different style. Some are appealing to us and some are not. How should we view the contemporary versus traditional, those that dress up and those that are casual, those that do more standing versus sitting down, and those who have a band versus a choir? Focusing on the essence of worship gives the church an anchor on which to focus our attention. Instead of arguing over style, we should strive for an awakening of genuine, heartfelt exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? But we do it by staying riveted on the essence of worship, not the form. The real issue lies primarily in the reality of the heart, not the functional details of style. Although form and style shouldn't be completely ignored, I think they are important, we should work hard at keeping them secondary. Question number four, what practical implications does biblical worship have? Well, the implications for corporate worship are many and very, very significant. First of all, What we receive in worship is more of God, not more entertainment. We should assemble hungry for God, not hungry to satisfy our own tastes. Secondly, true worship steers us away from man-centeredness and redirects us towards God-centeredness. This breeds a conviction that we need to passionately long for God on Sunday mornings. Singing and praying become more than orders of service. They become a means of getting to God and God getting to us with far more fullness. Third, it shifts away from the form of praise to the quality of praise. We should sing worthy of the Lord, and our instrumentalists should play with quality fitting as a gift of God. Finally, keeping God at the center guards us from the tragedy of worshiping as a means of accomplishing something other than worship. Genuine worship becomes affection for God as an end in itself. For example, I can't say to my wife, I feel a very strong delight in you so that you'll make me a steak dinner. That's not the way worship works. It terminates and culminates in the object itself. It doesn't have a nice meal in view. But for many churches, worship becomes a goal for other things such as raising money or attracting crowds or evangelism or a host of other reasons. What we should keep in mind is that true worship finds its goal in God, not in any other reason. I want to conclude by suggesting seven essential principles that should unite all of us in true worship. Principle number one, a radical God-centeredness, a high priority on the vertical and not a horizontal focus. You see, the ultimate aim is to experience that which brings God glory, not which glorifies us. Principle number two, expecting the powerful presence of God. We should earnestly seek and strive after God, expecting Him to draw closer to us as we pursue satisfaction in Him. Principle number three, Biblical-based and biblical-saturated music.
The content of all that we do should always be grounded in and conforming to the truth of Scripture. It should be woven all through our music and all through our worship. Principle number four, both head and heart. Worship aims at kindling deep and strong and real emotions toward God. It shouldn't manipulate emotions by failing to appeal to a clear thinking in God's word. Worship is to be real, that is, in spirit, and fueled by scripture in truth. Principle number five, authenticity. We should strive to abandon all hypocrisy and posturing to avoid artificially stimulated worship. We should work hard at cultivating an atmosphere for a personal, authentic worship with God. Principle number six, undistracting excellence. To perform all that we do, we should do it in such a way that avoids distraction from God by shoddy performance or excessive finesse. We should work hard at being good, but not professional for the sake of being professional. Principle number seven, the mingling of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We should avoid falling into what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We should be open to diverse ways the Lord works, both old and new. Well, that concludes this podcast, and I hope we've been able to bring some clarity to a sensitive and somewhat subjective subject. In my next podcast, we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about invitations and altar calls. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Until then, may you learn Christ, love Christ, and live for the glory of Christ. We trust that you have been blessed by listening to this week's episode of Touchpoints, a weekly podcast produced by East Point Bible Church in Peru, Indiana. To learn more about East Point, we would love to connect with you by reaching out via our website at ebcperu.org. That's ebcperu.org.